Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. I have Julianne Cusick on today's episode. I interviewed her last week, so if you did not hear that interview, please go to last week and listen to that first. You can hear her bio there. She is incredible and very compassionate. And during this interview, uh, the tables accidentally got turned, which was very delightful, and I really appreciated it, actually. She was really caring and compassionate and started asking me questions, so she became sort of the interviewer, and I was the interviewee. And it made for a fun episode. But before we get to that, so many women are in so much pain from their husband's lies, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, the sexual coercion involved with their husband's porn use and crossing sexual boundaries when they find out they're devastated. If this has happened to you, which I'm guessing it has or you wouldn't be listening to this podcast, if you didn't know already, we have a daily support group where you can talk to one of our professional coaches. Our professional coaches are the best. They are amazing. They immediately understand what's going on. They immediately understand the abuse and they can help you. You can get into one of our betrayal trauma recovery group sessions, most likely within four to six hours. So check out our website. You can see when the next session starts and you can talk with one of our coaches and talk with women in this situation face-to-face online from a computer, from your smartphone, in your car, wherever you are. You also don't have to get childcare. Go to btr.org, click on online support group, which is under the services tab to learn more. Okay, now for my continued interview with Julianne. What are some of the steps that you're taking and have taken that have helped you just regain your own sense of balance and to heal from this? Hey, the interview just kind of swapped where now you're the interviewer and I'm the interviewee. I'm just curious about you. Yeah. If our listeners don't mind, then I'll just talk about myself for a little while, which I always do, which they know. They're like, yeah, you're always talking about yourself. So when I first started writing on my book, I wrote literally every single abuse episode that I could think of. Every instance of gaslighting, every instance of emotional abuse or psychological abuse, every single instance. It was like a hundred pages. It was crazy. It was huge. So it's been in editing for a long time. Another editor is just working on it. She sent the version back and I started reading it and I was so sick of my own story. And I thought that was a really good sign. So I started reading the first two chapters that outlined sort of the things that he did because I want to give people really concrete examples. And I was like, Ugh, like I don't want to read this. And instead of thinking, like, I have to prove that he was abusive, right? Which is how I felt before. Now I'm like, oh, we can use examples from 30 other women or maybe 40 other women in the book. So I was thinking, oh, like these other women, their examples suffice for this. And it was just a healing moment for me. And I'm just deleting like huge sections out of it because I don't have to hold him accountable, so to speak, for every single little instance anymore. And you don't have to prove why it was so crazy making for you. Yeah. So writing has been really healing for me. I'm a writer. So that's how the book started was sort of my personal account so that I could kind of sort through what was going on, what was real and what wasn't real. And now that I'm healed more, it's less for me because I don't need to process that anymore. And now more for like, which examples really will help other women. That's good. I've been doing yoga every day. That's been really helpful. My no contact boundary is actually the most helpful thing to me. Like I said, any interaction is just insane. But focusing on my own physical health has been good. I've always been really athletic 
And it just, everything went out the window when this all went down. In fact, the moment I married him, I didn't ski anymore. I didn't mountain bike anymore. I didn't row anymore. I didn't do any of the things that I really love doing. And now I'm getting back to that. So I'm doing yoga every day and I'm weightlifting again. And I may work up at the ski resort the weekends when my kids are gone. And so coming back to myself has been like, oh, I'm getting back to myself. I love that phrase, by the way, coming back to myself. Yeah. And part of that was the abuse. And also part of it was that I had three kids under the age of six and getting out of the house is really hard and they're getting older now. Now my youngest is five. She was 11 months old when he was arrested. Time has helped a lot too. I mean, it's taken a lot of time to process. And I was thinking today of like, it's been four years now or almost five because it was in 2015 when he was arrested. I've improved so much. And in fact, I just went through a pretty hard period. I went off my antidepressant and I decided I was going to eat better. I wasn't going to emotionally eat anymore. So there's about a month where I was crying every day. I mean, really bad, like, like hysterical, like in the shower, like at church, finding a room where no one was locking myself in there, sitting on the floor, like full on bawling my head off about everything that had happened because I didn't have the crutch of food anymore. And I didn't have my antidepressant. So there were some feelings that I hadn't quite felt in a while. And that was about a month. My sister was getting very worried about me. So it was kind of everyone else. And then I was like, guys, I'm going to be okay. I just need to feel this right now, right? I'm not going to eat popcorn. I'm not going to eat Oreos. I'm not going to take an antidepressant. I just need to feel these feelings that I was not ready to feel four years ago because it was too much. It would have killed me if I would have had to fill everything all at the same time. So I used an antidepressant for two years and I ate a lot and I gained a lot of weight, which is fine. Both of those things are fine. Do it if that helps you. Now I'm at the stage where I could handle pretty intense emotions. I was stronger so I could handle it. And once I felt it, once they kind of cycled through, I'm still not emotionally eating and I'm still not on an antidepressant and I'm feeling great now. But it was a pretty intense three to four weeks of just emotions that were just, I hadn't really processed or felt. And that's four years later. So knowing that this takes time and it takes processing and that even if you're making forward progress, to be gentle with yourself. Because women, at least in my situation, we have all kinds of problems. We have financial problems, right? Then we have like work issues where we have to like, what are we going to do for work? And then we have physical problems if we're dealing with our emotions through eating or through watching TV all the time or other physical things that like put our health at risk. That's the basic, a woman working with three children that are young on her own. I mean, a round of applause for all the single working moms out there. It's so hard to do that alone. And then on top of that, you've got these multiple betrayal traumas that impacted you emotionally, psychologically, that also impact you physically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they were coming from therapists. My clergy took his side and friends, family, you know, stuff like that. So when I say family, I mean his family. This is not a small thing. No, it isn't. It is life changing. Even for me, even though Michael was repentant and disclosed everything and was doing his work, you know, five years out, I was still hurting and struggled with trust and we call them triggers, right? Or get emotionally activated. Something from the past would come up into the present and it was like the past would come rushing forward. Like here I am again, rrr, 
with all of the pain and fear and security, you know, can I really trust you? Have you really changed? So it is, it's a long process. The more serious the situation, like what you're describing, right? The longer it takes. And, you know, anniversaries, one year, two year, five year, 10 year, you know, getting into another relationship, all of those things kind of come back. And I love that you gave yourself the freedom and permission to just feel your feelings that were coming up as you chose to take some steps with your coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the cool part. Like I know I'm healing when I'm ready to say, okay, I'm not going to use food in this way anymore because I'm not clinically depressed. Well, I don't even know the word for it because my mental health situation is such that I can go off an antidepressant. Let me put it that way. Not saying anything bad about people who never go off of it. Good for you. But because I knew that for me, that was an option. Going off of it was a choice. And then knowing that, okay, dealing with these emotions is important for me now. Women are really strong and they're really smart. They can think like, oh, I need to be on a medication right now or I don't. Or whatever it is that they need to do at that point, the stronger you get, the more you can really think rationally through those decisions and make the right decision for you. And what one of them might be is, oh, I'm feeling really good, but now I realize my brain is imbalanced and now I need to go on an antidepressant, right? It could be any one of those choices for people, but the more healed we get, the more we're able to make better choices for ourselves, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There is no shame with medication. It's there for a reason and it, it wouldn't work if we didn't need it. So some women need it right away uh, because of the amount of dysregulation and the trauma symptoms that they're having, the hypervigilance, I can't eat, I can't sleep, you know, the constant worry, fear, anxiety that's there. And I've also seen women that get through that period because of all the adrenaline cortisol that's pumping through their system. It kind of keeps them on high alert and they're able to get through the crisis, but it's a year or two years out when they can finally exhale, that then they kind of notice they're slipping into a depression and then need some support at that time. So it's not a one shoe fits all type of situation, but there's absolutely no shame at all in getting support through this because our systems, it affects our whole body and all of the chemicals that our body makes. Absolutely. Yeah. I am not anti-medication. I just want to make that very clear to everybody. Please go on it if you need it. And this is where I'm at right now. Well, kudos to you for all the hard work you've done and for the place that you're in. And I'm sure even doing BTR is part of taking what has harmed you and turning it around to provide support and encouragement and resources for other hurting women that are out there. Because I know when I went through this 25 years ago, there was nothing out there. And so it was on my own that I started, you know, doing my own work and then having other women come into my life saying, Hey, can I talk to you about this? My husband was actually leading men's groups that men were really getting free from their pornography use. And he kept saying, gosh, the, the wives want to talk to you. You know, somebody wants to know. And so I just started meeting with women. I was asked to speak a couple times at different groups and as I started running these support groups for wives, I really started to see the impact and the trauma that they, they were experiencing. So I never really bought into that whole 
codependency co-addict model. And that's all that was out there when I was going through this. But thankfully, that did not influence my recovery process, but it has impacted many women and not for good. Yeah. Yeah, the victim blaming. I think the what the current pornography recovery field misses is the abuse, first of all, but also this bigger, wider discussion of like misogyny and the Me Too movement and feminism and all of these other aspects of like, you might be going to a male therapist. I'm not saying all male therapists are bad. Many of them are very good. Or maybe even a female therapist who buys into codependency, not realizing it's a form of victim blaming, which is also sort of misogynistic in its view, right? And so it's so much bigger than just, does he look at porn or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one reason I wanted to start BTR was to talk about all of these really important issues in one place, because I was not seeing that in your typical like 12 step group or a typical therapist's office. Because they're focusing on all the issues that are above the waterline, the behaviors that you can see where what's underneath the waterline is all of the issues that are driving the behavior. Unless you get underneath the waterline and you look at what's the source, you know, where is this coming from? What's fueling the behavior? Really, we're just managing symptoms on the surface. It's kind of like when you gave up food, that was your behavior on the surface. But what came up for you underneath was all of that pain. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I am still eating, by the way. <laughs> well, I'm glad for that. That's the hard thing with food is we can't just totally give it up. Yeah, exactly. So don't worry, everyone. I'm alive and well, and I'm still eating. I'm just not eating buckets and buckets of popcorn anymore. But when we're looking at an addiction, if we're just strictly looking at the behavior, if we said, okay, Anne, you know, white knuckle it, don't eat those buckets of popcorn, you might be able to do that, but you wouldn't be entering into everything that's underneath the waterline. That's all that pain and all of those feelings, right? That's underneath. And so many times I think focusing on sex addiction recovery is superficial and focuses on behavior and, oh, is it a red light or green light or, you know, what are my yellow lights? And it doesn't really go underneath. So it's kind of like the accountability is more like a cop. Hey, you were speeding or, hey, you ran that red light versus a cardiologist where they're really going deep into the heart of the person and saying, tell me your story. Where do you feel loved? Where do you feel valued? Where have you been wounded? And start peeling back layers like on an onion to get down into the deeper depths of what's really going on in that person's mind, heart, and soul. And that's not an excuse for the behavior, and it doesn't certainly minimize the impact. You know, many men don't set out on purpose, oh, I'm going to really mess with my wife and lie to her today. They're trying to keep it separate. But even if that wasn't their intent, that is their impact, right? Lying and deceiving and having a secret life or a double life does have consequences. There is a very significant, serious impact on the wife, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, physically. Right. And that's one reason we partner with Center for Peace is because we have seen that oftentimes traditional therapy that tries to get to the heart of, quote unquote, why he doesn't feel loved or whatever, just gives an abuser a shovel to dig his trench deeper rather than recognizing, wait a minute, I am loved. And 
I just don't feel love because of my misogynistic attitude or my feelings of entitlement or my compulsive sexual behavior or other things. And so I always like to warn people, like, you don't want to give an abuser a shovel. You do not want to give him a shovel because he's just going to dig his trench even deeper. So finding someone who really understands abuse on the therapist end for your husband is really, really important because we see all the time, the more sort of fuel a therapist might give him to like his entitlements and his feelings of being a victim and stuff like that makes it worse for the wife. We see that all the time. Yeah, I don't support him being more of a victim and not owning the impact that he's had on her. But I think, again, there's probably a range and a spectrum like extremes where one is they never look at that and the other one is they're just navel gazing and absorbed in it and it becomes another form of abuse on the wife. I think there's a balance in the middle that may be hard to find, but it is out there. And that's where we're seeing true healing and recovery and restorations of relationships. And then when they do end, when they're not restored, what does it mean to end well? to limit the damage, especially when children are involved, because in some ways these people are going to be connected for the rest of their lives because of the children. So we believe in ending well. If possible. (laughs) Sometimes ending well means grabbing your kids and your stuff and getting in the car and never talking to him again. That is the best case scenario for some women because of the abuse that they're going through. So knowing that like getting along might not ever be possible, it just depends on somebody's situation. And I think that's why at BTR, we really try to put the abuse first so that getting safe from the abuse is women's top priority. And that could look like many different things. But otherwise, I worry that they're trying to, quote, end it well or, you know, other various and sundry things that people want them to do to be like socially acceptable without making sure that they're emotionally and psychologically safe. Right. That has to come first because there is no ending well unless that's a part of it. So I kind of assume that that's first and foremost. And there's certainly no pressure or expectation on the wife to end well. It's more on how the therapist provides support and safety for the woman and helps her to set those boundaries and minimize the damage to her. To me, that's ending well is minimizing the damage. Yeah. And you're a good therapist. So you assume that that safety happens first? Absolutely. What I would say is most therapists don't. And then they must not be trauma-informed because trauma-informed therapist knows that is essential. This is a person who has just been violated and has no sense of safety, much like a sexual assault victim. Exactly. Yeah. And so safety is of the utmost importance. You can't do any work unless that client feels safe. And that is of utmost importance for any woman seeking help from a professional is she's got to feel safe. If she doesn't feel safe, run. Get a different therapist. Yeah. And at BTR, that's actually the bulk of what we see is that they don't account for that safety first. The best example I can give is a friend of mine is going through divorce with an extremely abusive man. She can't talk to him without being psychologically abused, blamed, you know, that sort of thing. And in court, the judge said, look, you guys are both professional people. Work it out. Oh, gee. Right. And there's no way she can work it out with him. It's impossible. And so a therapist might think, okay, you both like seem intelligent. You both seem nice. Like, let's work together to like, let this end well. And you're like, 
it can't. We can't coordinate or cooperate about anything without me being harmed in the process. And every time I try to like, quote unquote, be nice and like, do the right thing, I end up getting gaslit, taken advantage of, or, you know, those various and sundry things. So safety, I mean, so many people, lawyers, court people, clergy, therapists, they just don't have safety as what is the top priority. And that has to be the top priority when any type of like emotional or psychological abuse is involved. Absolutely. And for you and me and listeners, we can't have a healthy relationship with an unhealthy individual. No. So, you know, you can't end well with an unhealthy individual. It takes two. Exactly. I think what you meant is end well for you. Like my ending hasn't happened yet and it's in progress, right? I'm not dead yet, but is it ending well for me? And the answer is it's getting better every day. Yeah. And that's the best you can do with what you've been through. So yay for you. You've come a long way. So Julianne, thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate your time. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy and delight. I feel like I could talk another couple hours with you. Yeah, me too. We'll have you on again. So everybody stay tuned. We'll have Julianne on again another time. Well, thank you so much. And I just really want to applaud you for all your work and how you're giving back to women through this podcast. And kudos to you for writing your book and giving up buckets of popcorn. I wish you all the best. Thank you. If this podcast is helpful to you, please rate it on iTunes or your other podcasting apps. Every single rating helps women who are isolated find us. If the betrayal trauma recovery group schedule doesn't work for you or you're like a little nervous about a group, we also have individual sessions and you can schedule those with any of our coaches on our site, btr.org. So go to our site, btr.org to learn more. On our site, we also have all of the podcast episodes, which are transcribed into articles so that you can go and get quotes from there. We really appreciate it when people share our articles on social media so that other women can hear and learn more about the truth that pornography use is abusive and that betrayal is abusive. If you have the time and you're so inclined, please go to our website, check out the podcast section, maybe find one of the podcasts that has really changed you or really helped you and share it on Facebook or um, tag us on Instagram or Twitter or whatever social media platform you prefer. And until next week, stay safe out there.